Good morning. Really glad you're here this morning. Really excited to celebrate Christmas with you. Hopefully you're feeling ready or mostly ready. I know when you're just a couple of days out from Christmas, uh, it can be pretty stressful. My youngest son today was pretty bummed out. He's a day ahead in his advent calendar, no matter how many times I've explained it to him. Um, so he thought Christmas was tomorrow, and I had to break the news to him. So that was, that was rough, but he's, he's pretty pumped for Christmas. Uh, the focus of our sermon today is Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And maybe around Christmas time you hear Emmanuel, Emmanuel, but you may not exactly be familiar with that. Um, Matthew, uh, he quotes actually from Isaiah, which we'll read later, but in Matthew 1.22, Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The prophet said this, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we don't, we don't call Jesus Emmanuel. We call him Jesus, but he fulfilled. That's what Matthew says. He fulfilled that name by being God with us. Um, today, that's what we're looking at. We're not just looking at the Christmas story, but, but God with us throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of history. By the way, my name is Greg. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. Um, I love my job. It's also, it's also an interesting job. Um, Obviously, on a Sunday, I'm wearing a mic. Like people figure out, I'm probably the pastor. Um, but out, out when I meet people uh, in the community, I don't think people meet many pastors. So when when someone asks me, "What do you do for work?" There's always this moment where I'm a little bit nervous because it goes one of two ways almost every time, and it's pretty heavily favored one way. Most people get really uncomfortable. Like you'd swear I just told them I'm a hitman or something. Um, they're, they're not. They're not too excited to be talking to a pastor. I don't know if they think I'm judging them, if I can like see straight into their soul or what's going on. But a lot of people, I can tell, they're, they're just looking to exit the conversation in a polite way. And that's totally fine. Um, and then there's a smaller group of people that are really intrigued that I'm a pastor. And, and sometimes they have questions about, like, why would you ever do that with your life? Um, or maybe they have questions. I get a lot of questions about God, about the Bible. Uh, some people don't have questions. They just want to talk, and they just kind of want to share their thoughts about God and about Scripture. And, and so I do a lot of listening, and, and then hopefully I get some opportunities to tell them about God, to tell them what the Bible says about God. Uh, one popular belief that I hear a, a lot with people that um, maybe they have church background, maybe not, but I hear a lot of people say something like this, that each person, it, it's up to each one of us to kind of navigate our way to God, that it's up to each individual to find their way to God. And it's almost this, um, like a spiritual game of hide and seek, sort of. Uh, but the Bible tells a, a really different story. The Bible tells us that, that even though it seems like it might be up to us to find God, that we, we can't find God. If it were up to us to find God, we wouldn't have a chance. The only chance is God revealing himself to us. And we see that in the Christmas story. God reveals himself to Mary through the angel. God reveals himself to Joseph, the wise men, the shepherds. God reveals, God reveals, God reveals. I don't know if you've played hide-and-seek lately with a little kid, like a two, three, or a four-year-old. Um, it's not much of a game uh, on your end. You, you play it for their sake, for sure. My three-year-old, her, uh, her strategy, it's really complex. 
she hides in the exact same place every single time. And she thinks that this is good. And obviously we're not helping by pretending, oh, where are you, Maddie, when she's like right next to you. Um, but, but she thinks that, that this works and she lays there and she laughs and it's so funny. Every once in a while she asks me to hide. Most of the time she wants to hide, but sometimes she says, all right, Dad, it's your turn. And I go and I hide. And the only reason she finds me is because I want to be found. I have to reveal myself to her. So I'll cough loudly, or I'll give hints like, I'm hiding in the closet, Maddie. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then she finds me, and, and, and she loves it. But if I didn't want her to find me, like if I was having a really bad day, I could get a couple hours to myself, no problem. <laughs> she finds me because I reveal myself to her. So it might seem like we find God, but it's God that reveals himself to us. If God wanted to hide, we would never, ever find him. The Old Testament gives us the history of Israel as as God's people, more than just the history. But we see God's people, Israel, and they're never successful at making their way to God. Even when God is right in front of them. They can't make their way to God. We needed God to make a way to us. God with us, Emmanuel, has always been the plan. It's always been God's desire. And we see that from the beginning, even in Genesis with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see God with us. God walked in the garden. He didn't create Adam and Eve, give them this pristine garden to take care of, and then leave them be. No, he was with them. He knew them. They knew him. They weren't alone. It was God with us from the moment he created us. In talking with people, both people who, who do claim to know Jesus, but, but people that don't um, necessarily say they know Jesus or they're trying to figure out who Jesus is, I often hear a feeling or a sense that maybe God isn't so near, like the Bible talks about. Maybe, um, maybe God's actually pretty distant. And they don't necessarily explicitly say that, but I hear this fear that God's made them and then just left them to figure it out on their own. That isn't how God works. That isn't what God is like. That isn't who he is. God in his, in his nature is relational. So he's not like an older sibling that's so often annoyed with the younger sibling and any chance the older sibling has to ditch the younger. He, God doesn't do that. It might seem bizarre to us, that God wants to be with us, but he does. He, he wants to be with us in a personal, intimate relationship. And even when sin comes in the world by the choice of Adam and Eve, God wants to be with us. Make no mistake, sin is a problem. Man sinned against God. We're told the wages of sin is death. Man needed to pay for their sin, but couldn't cover the bill. I don't know if you've ever gone somewhere and you got the bill and then you went to go pay and you realized you didn't have your wallet. I uh, dated this young woman in college. Date one was great. Um, we both wanted to go on a second date. We go on date two, having a great time. I don't remember where we were, having a great time. The, the bill comes for dinner. I reach back and there's no wallet there, man. Like, oh, and, and it's not like I knew this girl. Like we just met through a friend, so embarrassed. So she was, she was really cool about it. She paid for it. I'm embarrassed to death. But it must have gone well enough because she decided, hey, let's, let's go on another date. So date three, all I'm thinking about is I gotta have my wallet the whole date. I'm like keenly aware. I probably touched my back pocket like awkwardly the whole date. But 
my wallet was there. I was able to pay for the day. It like made it through that. Date four, I forgot my wallet. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's not the woman I married. It did not work out. <laughs> I'm glad it did not work out. Um, but man, I was so embarrassed both times when I, when I forgot my wallet. Our inability to pay for sin isn't because we forgot our wallet. It isn't because we forgot our, our bank card. The problem is our funds are insufficient. We can't pay what we owe. Sin is rebellion. And how, how someone responds when they're wronged, I think, is very telling. So what does God do when creation rebels against them? He looks for them in the garden. Right? Adam and Eve hide, and, and he seeks them. Maybe you remember this as a kid. You did something wrong. You went and hid. Maybe you hid in your room or in your closet, and you're hiding there in your shame, in your guilt, and you don't have much of a plan. The plan is just to hide there forever. And then mom or dad, they come and find you. People have been hiding ever since original sin, and God has continued to seek. We hide, and God seeks us. God didn't respond by saying, forget it. Fix your own problem. Adam and Eve chose sin over relationship with God, but that did not result in God being any less desirous of being with his people. He, he loves us. And instead, he promises he'll send a Savior right there in Genesis. He promises that he'll send someone that can make the payment necessary, someone who would conquer sin. Because sin is a really complex problem. Man has wronged God, so it's man that needs to pay. But like I said, we don't have the funds that we owe. Because every person sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. None of us are righteous. All of us are guilty. So how can we pay the price? We need a representative to pay for us, but every man stands guilty. Only God can pay that price. Only God is righteous in all that he does and therefore has the sufficient funds. But he's God and not man. The payment needs to come from humanity. That's why we needed Jesus to be both God and man, to be our representative. So this theme of God being with his people doesn't just appear in the garden, but it's, it's all throughout scripture. You might have heard of the tabernacle, which the tabernacle was just a portable tentle, uh, temple, right? It was a tent, um, a portable temple that, that Israel, when, when they were going to be on the move, they packed up, packed up the tabernacle along with all their stuff. They moved where they were camping next. They set it up there. And, and this, this, was God's, this is God's tent. So God could dwell among his people. Even though there's the problem of sin, God found a way to live among his people, which is incredible. But it's not like a person could just mosey on up into the tabernacle. Sin is a huge problem. Sin is a huge problem. The priests had to make sacrifices for the people. In the tabernacle, there was the Holy of Holies. You may have heard of it. That's where God's very presence was. And one time a year, the high priest could go in, and, and he, could, he could sprinkle the blood to atone for the sins of the people. But even to get into that room, he had to go through all these rituals to cleanse himself. But it was incredible that God did find a way to be with his people, and it was a sneak preview of God with us, a reminder of God's heart to be with his people, a reminder of the future that God would be with his people. Later, King Solomon built a temple for God to dwell in among his people. So there was a permanent place for God to be. They didn't need the tabernacle anymore. So it was great that God was with his people, but there's still the problem of sin. Sacrifice after sacrifice 
had to be made for the sins of the people. Blood was shed over and over and over to atone or to pay for our sin. Leviticus 17.11, God told Moses why the blood was necessary. He said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is how God designed it, that it would have to be paid for in blood. And we're pretty disconnected from blood. I don't butcher my own meat. My guess is some of you hunt, so you, you harvest a deer a year maybe. Um, we don't do that in our house. Like we, we buy our meat. My three-year-old just the other day realized that not only do we drink from cows, but we eat cows. And she said, that's really gross. And I didn't tell her, literally, this is the night we had hamburger. I didn't tell her what our burgers were made of. But I imagine it must have been sobering for a priest to see how much blood had to be shed for the people because of sin and knowing that it was absolutely necessary for God to be among his people. Through the prophets, God continues in the Old Testament to remind that a Savior would come. From the very line of David, there would be a Savior. And this king would save the people from sin. This king would somehow be Emmanuel. So that verse I read earlier in Matthew is a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This promise comes from God to his people, but it was not just limited to his people. God was not only going to save the Jews or some of the Jews. This was always going to be God sending a Savior to anyone who would trust in him. So these messages that the Savior is coming throughout the prophets, and God's people waited, and they waited, and they waited. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years Generations waited for God to send the Savior. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. And, and Joseph and Mary, there's a census there. They're going to the town where he has to be registered. It says in verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I would never guess that God would come as man. I would never conceive of that being a plan, that he would humble himself in that way, that Jesus would be the God-man, let alone that he would be born. Like, I would think he would just show up at 30 years old or something. But, but he, he humbled himself. He was born. So even if I can imagine that that would be the case, I would at least imagine that he'd be born in some place that was spectacular, a, a palace or, or something, not, not be laid in a manger, in a feeding trough. I would certainly expect there to be this extravagant announcement that the king has come and a, a welcoming party with, with dignitaries and world leaders, princes, kings. But that's not what happened. It was read earlier that, that angels showed up to shepherds. And they said, I have the best news. Today in Bethlehem, the Savior has been born. And they told them where to find Jesus lying in a manger. And then all these angels appear and say, Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace among those with whom God is pleased. The announcement didn't come to really important people. The announcement came to shepherds. And I think 
there's something really important for us to realize in there, that the Savior is for anyone who would respond. Jesus is a gift, and that gift is for anyone that's demonstrated that he comes to these, these shepherds. I don't know anything about shepherding, really, but I do know it's not a glorious job. I guarantee these young men were not social elites. They were everyday Joes. The announcement didn't come to kings or even religious leaders. It came to a bunch of normal guys. And by their response, they recognized they needed a Savior. They couldn't wait as soon as they heard the Savior had come. Do you recognize that you need saving? Do you know that? That sin actually is a huge problem. It wasn't long ago in Western culture that many people realized that they needed saving, even if they didn't trust in Jesus, even if they weren't sure about the Bible. They knew they were broken. They knew that there was a problem, whether they labeled it sin or not. Today, I don't think that's as obvious. I think we look at ourselves and, and we think we're pretty good people. And you know what? You probably are. But the problem is you're comparing yourself to other people. If you want to play the comparison game, we've got to play it correctly. We've got to compare ourselves to perfection, to God, to the Holy One. Even on my best day, at a minimum, I do something in my heart or in my mind against someone that hurts someone. And that's a reminder that I'm broken, that my sin is a problem, that, that no matter how much I try and tinker with it, I can't fix my problem. No one can take care of that problem but Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the complex problem that sin leaves us in. If he didn't come in the flesh, humanity would have no way to pay. We needed God to pay our debt of sin. Jesus is the only one that can make things right, and it's amazing to me that he's willing to. We all know what it's like to hurt someone so bad that it, it doesn't even feel reasonable to ask them for forgiveness. That they would have every right to withhold forgiveness because there is always a cost in forgiving. Like if you came to my house and somehow you, you broke one of my windows and I said, you know what, don't worry about it, it's okay. But the cost to you there would be maybe a little embarrassment. But there's a cost to me. Like obviously I'm not gonna live with a broken window like at a minimum, I gotta like duct tape it or, or something to try and make it better. Hopefully, I have the funds to actually pay for a window. I'm not handy enough to install it myself, so I gotta pay somebody to do that too. With forgiveness, there's always a cost, and God forgiving us costs Jesus everything. He humbled himself, like I said, being born as a human, lived a sinless, perfect life that we were unable to live, and then it got really costly when he died in our place. Because sin had to be paid for, had to be atoned for. Like that window, sin had to be paid for. Jesus is the only one with the sufficient funds. So he was beaten, he was tortured, he bled, and he died on that cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that his payment went through, that he did have the funds. So we're faced with a choice. Will you take the gift that Jesus offers? He offers you eternal life. He offers us to be forgiven of our sins. And... In a couple days at Christmas, I really doubt any of us are going to turn down a gift that we're given. But with Jesus, we do have to choose. Will we accept his forgiveness? Will we believe in him and receive him as Lord, who alone can forgive us of our sins? So back to the story of God with us throughout Scripture. So we know Jesus came, he died, he rose. And, and then he was here for a little bit longer, 40 days. And then, and then he ascended to his rightful place in heaven with God. So that doesn't sound like God with us. It sounds like God with us for about 33 years. 
And now where is God? Well, let's jump into John chapter 16. This is before Jesus died. He's preparing his disciples. We're in verse 4. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. The, the disciples have been with Jesus for about three years. They feel the loss here. Maybe you know what it's like to find your, your purpose in life. These men did better than that. Not only did purpose find them, but God himself found them. He gave them more than purpose. He gave them life. While they didn't fully understand how great Jesus was, they did on some level recognize he was the king, that he was the savior, that he was the son of God. They knew they needed him. There's a point when a ton of people had been leaving Jesus, and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, are you going to leave too? And one of them responded, where else would we go? Why in the world would we leave you? So these men, they're devastated hearing that Jesus is going to leave. And then he drops verse 7 on them. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's a crazy verse that Jesus says it's going to be better for you that Jesus, the God-man, leaves so that he can then send the Holy Spirit. That's who the helper is. I have a handful of people in my life that I could have the worst day ever, and I know they're a phone call or a text away, and they'll drop everything and come help me. They'll pray for me, whatever I need. But can you imagine being one of the disciples one day just being stressed out of your mind, and then you turn, and Jesus is right there. And you tell him what's going on. He already knows anyway, but you tell him what's going on. He says, Jesus, will you talk to the Father for me? Will you pray? And Jesus doesn't deny that that's great, but he says that there's something better than God in the flesh next to you. He says that when he goes, he will send the helper. The helper is the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. We'll get to what he does in a moment, but who he is is God. The Holy Spirit is God with us because Scripture tells us that if you accept Jesus, he lives in you. He's God in us, meaning the Holy Spirit of God resides in you. Paul, the Apostle Paul, calls our bodies temples. Right? He uses this imagery back from the Old Testament where God lived in the tabernacle, in the temple, and back then, God lived among his people, right? So, so you could get line of sight and, and, and see where God's temple was or see where, where God's tabernacle was, the tent, but, but this is better. It's not just seeing God's tent. You are God's tent. The Holy Spirit tabernacles in you. I heard one guy describe the Holy Spirit as God's personal presence in you, and I think sometimes we confuse the Holy Spirit with the force from Star Wars, this impersonal power, that is not at all who the Holy Spirit is. That's not what he's like. The Holy Spirit is powerful, among other things. He's the one that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's, believers, who you have living in you, who you have residing in you. So it makes sense that as great as it was to be around Jesus, Jesus says it's to our advantage that he goes, so that we can have the Holy Spirit living in us. And there are all kinds of implications here, but Here's one I want to zone in on. Believers, this means you're never alone. 
And all of us, to different degrees, we enjoy being around people or not being around people, just depending on how you're wired. But I don't know anyone that likes being lonely. In Jesus, we're never alone because God is in us. He's with us through the Holy Spirit. God's personal presence is with us in the Holy Spirit for each and every one who places their faith in Jesus. And then he describes in verse 8 what the Helper does. It says, when the Helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Believers, the, the Holy Spirit guides us in truth. He guides Jesus' followers in truth. He opens up scripture to us, illuminates God's word so that we can see the wonderful truths in it. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. I love these verses. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depth of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Right? That is who we have in us. That's how the Spirit guides us in truth. Verse 9 says the Holy Spirit convicts. And for me, that is a huge relief, that, that it's not my job to convict people. Now, that's not saying God won't use a believer, use their words to, to convict someone, but it's the Holy Spirit that does that. We're incapable of convicting people. We can probably make people feel bad. We can probably shame people, but, but that's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit convicts that people need to repent of trying to be Lord of their own life and let Jesus, the true King and Savior, be Lord of their life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can show us that we need Jesus, that we need to believe in Jesus. So that's what we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will do. Verse 14 says the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. I get glorify is a, is a churchy word, but it just means showing who Jesus really is, helping people to see how great he is, how desperately they need him. Verse 14 tells us it's, it's the Spirit's desire to magnify Jesus in the heart of each and every believer. Romans 5, here's just some other things the Holy Spirit does. Romans 5, and hope does not put us to shame, 5-5, uh, five, five, sorry, uh, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So one thing the Holy Spirit does is he pours God's love into our hearts as believers. Galatians 5 tells us the Holy Spirit helps us to resist temptation, that, that more and more we, we will... We will um, will avoid gratifying the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 3 tells us the believers strengthen with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. Romans 8.15 tells us the Holy Spirit is the one that gives us confidence to cry out to God as our Father. Right? That, that we're adopted and, and, and the Holy Spirit's the one that tells us, no, you, you're real, you're really God's kid. You're really God's son. Holy Spirit helps us pray 
Holy Spirit renews us. The Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. The Holy Spirit gives us joy. The Holy Spirit causes us to abound with hope. Jesus knew how vital the Holy Spirit would be for the success of his disciples on their mission. Luke 24, very end of the book, he's telling them what they're going to do. They're going to be the ones that take the gospel out. But he says, you can't, don't even try to do anything. You need to wait until you have the Holy Spirit. He says this, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. I think it's really normal to think, man, if I could just see Jesus, then I could believe, or it'd be easier for me to believe. But as we've been going through the book of John, there's all kinds of people that saw Jesus. And for a lot of them, it didn't help them believe at all. They rejected Jesus. So don't assume that if you could see him, you would believe in him. What you really need is the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, to show you that Jesus is truly Lord. And if you want to believe that, pray for that today. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you in your heart and mind if Jesus is true or not. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. And I've been praying that, that all week, that the Holy Spirit would do that in you. I think you're here for a reason today. I think God is drawing you to himself if you're here. He's calling out to you saying, you do not have to be alone. I made a way. I came as Emmanuel, God with us, because I want to be with you. Jesus is saying, I want you to know me. I already know you. Will you believe? Like God had promised, he sent the Savior, and the Savior was God himself. That's how Jesus fulfilled the name Emmanuel, like Matthew said. He was God with us. And similar to God in the garden with Adam and Eve, kind of like God in the tabernacle, traveling around with Israel, and God in the temple that Solomon built. But now Jesus was with humanity. Instead of keeping some distance, God came closer than anyone could ever imagine. God came to be with us, and he gave us the Holy Spirit to be in us. So how, how will you respond this Christmas to Jesus' birth? I love the Christmas story. I love, obviously, thinking about the incarnation, God coming in the flesh. But for the last several years, uh, the way I, I read the, the Christmas stories, and I think it's the way the authors intended, I can't help but think about the different responses to the birth of Jesus. The shepherds, we already mentioned them, like they were so excited. They ditched their sheep to go see this Savior. And on the way back, they told everyone about him, even though they knew very, very little. Mary, we didn't even talk about her. She's amazing. She's not worthy of being worshipped, but here's a woman full of faith. You know, we can kind of imagine how hard it must have been for her in that day to be pregnant, not married yet. But we don't really know what it was like for those whispers behind her back, that the name she was probably called to her face even. I'm sure that she wondered how her fiancé was going to take this unbelievable news. And yet she responds, she says, I'm your servant. I'm in. There's the wise men. The wise men told Herod. Herod, um, Herod was in power. Herod was threatened by the news that there was a king, that there was a savior. Herod liked being in control of his own life, like many of us, maybe all of us. He didn't want to give up his power. So Herod had all the, all the males under two years old killed because he was not going to have someone that rivaled his throne. The wise men, who, who we call the three kings, um, they're really interesting. They weren't Jewish men. They weren't raised to believe that the Messiah was coming. But somewhere along the way in their studies, they had found out that God, the God of the Jews made a promise to send a Savior. 
And they're motivated to see for themselves. The star comes, and they take off on this journey. Now, I wonder if you relate to that. Like maybe, maybe you weren't raised to believe in Jesus. Maybe, maybe you don't go to church much, but you've heard about him. And the question is, like the wise men, are you willing to see for yourselves? We know these men traveled a long distance. We don't know exactly how far, but some scholars guess that it was Persia or modern-day Iran. Okay, so that, that could be up to a 900-mile journey. Okay? It'd be like us walking from Camas to Bakersfield, California. That's amazing. These guys were pretty motivated. These guys who, who weren't raised to know about Jesus, they were pretty motivated to see if Jesus is for real, if Jesus is who Scripture says he is. The Bible says Jesus is God, that in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell that in Jesus we have the visible image of the invisible God, the very self-disclosure of God, that through the incarnation, death, and resurrection, Jesus made a, made a way to be with us, for us to be forgiven of our sin so that we can be reconciled to him, so that we can be in a right relationship with him that we were created to be in. The goal has always been God with us. In the garden, through the tabernacle, Jesus came, he broke down the barriers in order to give us access to God. And then he gave us the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, in the end, in Revelation, we realize that in heaven, God will dwell with his people. Sin will be no more. Jesus is fully taking care of it, and God will be with us for all who confess that Jesus is Lord. The one who was birthed into this world came to die so that we could live with him. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that that as man rebelled against you, you did not reject us. We thank you that there was always a plan in place, Jesus, for you to come, for you to live the life that, that none of us can live and die the death that we all deserve so that if we would choose to be forgiven, we would have eternal life in you. Jesus, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given us, that we're not alone, that we have the very presence of God in us, God's personal presence. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you revealed truth to us. And I, I just continue to pray that you would do that. That for those who already believe in you, that you continue to strengthen their belief. That you continue to help them, Holy Spirit, to trust in you, to grow in their understanding of how great you are, God. For those who don't believe, Lord, God, would you bring about belief even today in hearts? Jesus, would we not miss what Christmas is all about? that you've given us the best gift ever. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.